Good evening and welcome. How are you tonight? Let's turn to Isaiah 65. Lord, may you bless your word tonight. We thank you, Lord. It's a, it's a light, Lord, in a dark place. Getting darker. We pray for your continued illumination, Lord, in our lives. So help us, Lord, we pray, to keep the searchlight of your word, Lord, in our hands and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. David uh, writes in Psalm 11. It's an observation that he makes, uh, interesting in Psalm 11 and Psalm 12. He says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then he says over in uh, chapter 12 of the Psalms, uh, he says, um, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases and the faithful disappear from the children of men. As we come to uh, this part of uh, Isaiah, that's kind of the cry in his heart. And it's a very difficult thing, and I think that we can bear witness to this and agree with this, that when you're watching your culture go into decline, uh, when you're watching the society become more corrupt uh, and depraved, it's a very, very difficult thing to watch, to observe that. And one of the things that's important that we see that David does bring out in Psalm 11, where he says there, you know, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The next verse is, God is on his throne. And we have to remember that God is sovereign and that God is working a purpose even as things seem to go down the tube. And as we come here to chapter 65, in the previous chapter, we find Isaiah crying out. Uh, he's crying out for uh, God to not hide his face. Lord, for that you would, would intervene, that you would come down. Remember he said that? Lord, that you would come down, that you would come down and that you would revive uh, and that you would give life. And Lord, you would change and, and just change and work in this situation. And he says also, too, and you see this not only in Isaiah, you see this in so many other uh, prophets, you know, in the Old Testament, that, Lord, you would do something awesome as in days gone by. They, they would hark back to the, to the exodus or some great, you know, intervention. Because you know what? They're remembering there that, Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have to remember that, too. Because it seems to be that we're on a very clear downward spiral, uh, not just a soft incline. Uh, we are on a spiral. It's, it's, the culture is in nosedive. And it's very important for us um, to basically be salt and light, to represent Jesus Christ today. Uh, this is our hour, folks. You know, when things are just kind of going good and hunky-dory and, um, you know, everything is just sweet and wonderful. But it's, when the, it's really when the chips are down and when things are difficult. And when uh, I think the church today, I think we're in, we've entered into a testing period. Uh, and it's important for us that, that we remain faithful. Not like Psalm 12, that the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. But that we remain faithful to the Lord to honor him and to glorify him. Because again, this is our opportunity. 
This is our time. This is when the church has to shine. You know, I'll tell you what, stars shine brighter in the darkness. You don't see them in the daytime. And I'll tell you what, it's getting darker and darker out there in our society and our culture. And it's important for us to shine for our Savior. Now, the questions that were asked in, in uh, chapter 64, his answer comes now here in chapter 65. And he says something very, very interesting. He says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And uh, he's alluding here to the Gentile world. And remember this, uh, God is always the initiator. Remember Jesus said, and I think John 16, you know, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you, okay? Now, now do, I, do you remember, anybody remember the program back oh, 30 years or something like that ago? I found it. Remember that one, the bumper sticker program? I found it, you know, kind of a thing. And there's a truth to that, but the fact of the matter is God found us, didn't he? Man, he's, the, he's always the initiator. Uh, and even when we, f we begin to search and we, you know, uh, many people, I, I was on a spiritual quest, a search. I was looking in all the wrong places, okay? Uh, I would go into bookstores and libraries and, you know, looking uh, for the answer and philosophy and that sort of thing. And it was all dead end. Uh, but, you know, I, and I think the Lord just began to, he was stirring something within my heart. But again, you know, because of, you know, basically, you know, preconditioned ideas about religion and about God, that's the last place that I wanted to look. But that's where exactly we find him, isn't it? He reveals himself to us, uh, you know, when, you know, sometimes when we least expect it. And so he's speaking, referring here, you know, to the Gentile word where he's, world where he says, I said, here I am, here I am. You know, in a sense, God is so anxious, in a sense, if I can use that term, um, to have a relationship with us. I mean, his desire, his passion um, was so great that he, he had to take on flesh. <laughs> he had to take on flesh and he had to come and basically reveal himself to mankind. Um, really up until that point, everybody had questions, well, what God's like? Well, you know, what is he like? You know, what, and, and what we had was we had Old Testament revelation about him. But there's no greater revelation of God than the person of Jesus Christ. You know, as we see him in the Gospels and, uh, you know, as we, we come to know him in our personal life and our personal experience. <laughs> and imagine this. God say, here I am. Here I am. I, I think the Lord's doing that today with many people. Here I am. You're, you're, you know, you're looking in the wrong place. You're going down the wrong path. You know, you're caught up in the wrong thing. Here I am. Um, I think it's sometimes, you know, people that grow up, you know, within a Christian of maybe in a context of Christianity, going to Christian schools and, and growing up in a Christian home. Uh, it's interesting sometimes that oftentimes those kids leave that and want to go kind of find themselves. They want to find something else. They think that maybe, you know, that, you know pr Satan so often presents the world as this big, you know, bowl of cherries, so to speak. You know, just this big, glitzy, glittering thing kind of out there. Uh, that somehow, you know, I need to really discover that type of thing. And, and, and we've discovered that, isn't it? Haven't we? And I'll tell you what, that's a terrible discovery. Um, it's a minefield out there. You know, think about some of the things that you delved into and, and your life, you know, got involved in and, and the mess that oftentimes it creates. And then we finally, at some point, we bring ourselves and turn ourselves over to the Lord Jesus. So God's saying, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, again, he's saying this to the Jews, okay? Because, 
you know, he's been so active, you know, in revealing himself to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people. Uh, and, you know, when I say that, I always feel convicted, not just the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, okay? The Jewish people are part of the Hebrew people, okay? But God has, you know, he has always been working to reveal himself to them. And he says to them, he's saying this here, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now, you might sort of say, well, that sounds familiar. Uh, Paul takes from this, he borrows from this here over in Romans chapter 10. And, and in Romans chapter 10, I want you to turn there. Paul says this as he explains. Remember, anytime the, the New Testament writer picks up, you know, on an Old Testament uh, uh, portion of Scripture, he's, giving it, he's, expo- he's, he's expositing on it. He's explaining it. He's putting it in the, uh, the, the, just the right place. Because sometimes when you get prophecies in the Old Testament, they're like boom, 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 boom. Okay? And uh, the Holy Spirit sometimes will bring uh, a greater insight and understanding to them as he applies them in the New Testament setting. And Paul will say this uh, in chapter 10 of Romans, one of the great chapters of Romans. But I'll tell you what, all the chapters are great in Romans. I, I, it's such a great book. And... Uh, um, if, there's, if, if, uh, if you could say, uh, what New Testament letter, if anybody would ask you, what New Testament letter should I read? Take him to Romans. Man, it's rich. Uh, I remember uh, one commentator I was reading, he said, if you look at the New Testament as a cathedral, um, Romans is the pinnacle. It's, it's the high point, uh, that cathedral of truth. But looking at verse 16, uh, and he's speaking here, uh, remember chapter 10 uh, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are spoken, and again, he just, he takes this swath, this three-chapter swath out of Romans, um, speaking to Christians, and it's about the Jews. And he's, he's wanting to give the church understanding about the Jew, that God isn't finished with the Jew. So again, Romans 9 is what? Is Israel past. Romans 10, Israel present. Romans 11, Israel future. So in chapter 10 here, <clears throat> he's speaking about how Israel so needs the gospel, yet they've rejected the gospel, but we're going to pick it up in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? We read that earlier in the prophecy of Isaiah here. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, how does faith come? Listen. And that's a, isn't that the beauty of faith? You don't even have to be literate. I mean, it's a great benefit, but imagine in, in, you know, where the gospel is preached in, 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 you know, over history, you know, we take literacy as something, it's a birthright. I'll tell you what, that's something new to the world. You go back just a couple hundred years and a lot of people were not literate, but here's the blessing of, 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 you know, of faith. It comes by just listening, just listening to the truth and listening to the scripture He says, but I say, have they not heard? Well, yes, indeed, he says. Their sound, speaking about the word of God, reference here to Psalm 19, their sound has gone out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? And uh, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. That's what he's doing with the church in Israel. He works to, to just basically you know, provoke them in a sense to be jealous because as they see the church 
and, and they see what we have. This relationship with their Messiah. <laughs> it's with their Jewish Messiah that we have this glorious redemption and salvation. And, and God uses that. He uses that to just provoke a curiosity, provoke a jealousy in people. Say, man, you know what? You know, here I am in my religion, and, and I don't have that kind of joy. I, I don't have that kind of happiness. You know, what is it? You know, what is it about those you know, Bible-believing Christians? Well, I'll tell you what, it ain't about us. It's about Him. It's about our relationship with Him and what He has wonderfully done for us and what continues to do. And aren't you thankful salvation is an ongoing thing? It's just an ongoing thing. It's a cornucopia. It's a horn of plenty. And I'll tell you what, it ain't going to be finished by the time we end this life. It's just going to take us right into eternity. So, so He just says, I'm going to provoke them to jealousy by a nation uh, by, by those who are not a nation and move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and he says, I was found by those, what we quoted here, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary, contrary people. Isn't it interesting? You know, there's a great irony here. There's a great irony. It's kind of interesting because we even see it kind of not only played out with, it, with, with Israel, but we even see it played out, interesting, with the church today. But those who have had the most exposure to spiritual truth have rejected truth. Isn't that interesting? When you think about the Jew, I mean, when Messiah finally came, they had, they had 1,500 years plus of preparation and spiritual truth, and experience, and recording of it in the Scriptures. They had the Scriptures. And it's an irony sometimes, and we see it, we see it in Christianity, that kids that grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents can have had so much exposure to truth, and yet at the same time reject it. It almost seems like an irony, isn't it? And, and then the person who grew up in the pagan environment, you know, gets exposed to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for my whole life. It's just kind of an irony. And, and perhaps maybe it's just, you know, that ongoing exposure and, you know, familiarity. You know, even as Christians, I, I've seen this in those who, who really truly are born again. But sometimes they get familiar with the things of God. I see it in pastors. I, I see it in pastors, you know. They're f they can become so familiar with the Scripture and with the truth that, that somehow they think they can do things that are just simply inconsistent, you know, with the truth and kind of get away with it. it it's kind of an interesting thing that we can become some, sometimes so familiar. Do you know anybody that's known the Lord for, you know, you've fellowshiped with this person? You, you know this person well? And you see them become so, you know, so familiar, so conditioned, so exposed to the truth. They don't need to go to church anymore. <laughs> they don't need to go to church anymore. They, they, don't, they don't need to pray. You know, when you look at that first, the person in their first experience with Jesus, their first couple years with Jesus, man, they were just so excited and all that. And we have to be careful. I think it comes. I think it comes. I think it happens is when... We become just 
theologians without practice. We need to practice. We need to practice the things that we're hearing. We need to be diligent that the things that, that uh, we've studied, you know, uh, what we're doing right now, in a sense, is kind of an, an academic experience, you know, as far as studying the Word of God and, and agreeing with it and that sort of thing. But are we practicing it? Are, are we proactive, you know, in applying these principles of Scripture and truth, you know, to our everyday experience? Because I think what happens is we can get kind of just numb to it. You know, we get sort of just, you know, just... Uh, again, familiar with it, so familiar with it. Um, I once heard a story of, a, of, a, of a, a train conductor in the days of trains, and he worked in Grand Central Station in New York. And uh, day after day, and, and he, would be, he would be announcing, you know, this train for Albany, this train for Syracuse, for Rochester, for Buffalo. And in his own mind, he feels that he's been there because he's, qu he's quoted the, th the things so many times. But he had never left New York City. <laughs> and I think there's a danger for us, too. You know, as Christians, we can get so familiar with, you know, with Scripture. But is it really active? Is, is it proactive? And that's really where the test is. And that's, in a sense, I think, what, what happened, you know, with Israel of old, you know, with many of the Jews as they went to maybe temple or to synagogue, you know, week after week after week. And, and just, you know, subtly, subtly, we can become callous, you know, to God and to the things of God. And, and if that happens, it's gonna, it, it, it expresses itself. You know, there, there becomes this, you know, uh, what's it in Hebrews chapter 2? He says in chapter 2, verse 1, we need to take the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest they slip. And, and the word slip or drift away in some of the translations is a nautical term. It, it's, like, it's like the picture of a boat that was in the harbor and it lost its mooring. And that's what happens when we drift away from God. We lose our mooring. We lose our anchor point. And the thing about it's interesting, if you've ever been, if you've ever been in, a, in, in, in the ocean or even out there in, in, you know, in the lake, there's a current. There's a current. Uh, and you don't realize how quickly it can move you. Um, you know, if, if you're anchored, you just kind of stay there. You know, you kind of got your, your landmarks and so forth uh, where you are. But if you're not anchored, it's amazing how that current will just sort of move you. And it's so quick, but at the same time, too, you don't realize it. And I think that's what happens with the current of this world, the current of this culture. It has a way. It has a way. That's why it's important. Yeah, your kids, your grandkids, they may have grown up in a Christian context, um, your friends and so forth. But you know what? It's amazing. You can watch people and you can see that drift take place. And how important it is that we're praying, that we're praying, Lord, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, help them to see that. Um, you know, my kids, Mara, Ness has been empty for some time and, Got a bunch of grandkids, and we're thankful for them all. But I tell you what, I, I, I think I pray for them now more than I prayed for them when they were in my house. You know, in my house, I could watch them. I knew what they were doing. I said, like, okay, go to bed. Okay, behave yourself or whatever the case may be. I had a certain level of control over them. I have no control over them now. And uh, so, you, you know, sometimes you watch your adult children doing things. It's like, oh, my goodness, what are they doing? You know, kind of a thing. But I tell you what, you can pray. You can pray that God would just work, you know, in their situation. Don't just give up hope. Um, and don't leave them to themselves. Um, you know, pray that God would just, you know, work within their life, within their situation. Verse 3, a people who provoked me to anger continually uh, to my face, 
who sacrifice in gardens, and they burn incense on altars of brick. And it's interesting, too, when people begin to lose or move away from God's revelation regarding salvation, they don't become non-religious. They oftentimes become religious in all the wrong ways. That's what idolatry is. Um, you know, God's people as, you know, as Satan has a way of enticing us. Satan kind of watches us. Have you ever read any of the, the uh, spiritual warfare books? You know, Frank Peretti, um, uh, who is the English guy? Uh, Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis. And you read that kind of stuff and you realize, you know, Satan has a dossier on people, okay? And he's got minions. He's got his, 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 his demon spirits and they're always watching. They're always watching in some kind of way uh, to defeat the church. And they kind of watch us and they look when we're vulnerable. And that's when he begins to entice. That's when he begins to tempt and to sort of pull us away. Uh, He's a cheater. The devil's a cheater. He takes advantage of us when we're at our worst, when we're in our most difficult, frail, weak spiritual condition. And he's always trying to entice us in some kind of way to pull us away. And, And so when someone begins to drift away from true revelation... It's not that they become non-religious, but they become religious about all the wrong things. And let me use another term. They become passionate about many other things. In other words, that's what, see, here's an idol. It, it, you know, I used to think, and, and of course, you know, we have our stereotypes, an idol is this little figurine. This little figurine that people, you know, they, they light their incense to or their candle to or they bow down to. or that. And of course, that was part of antiquity. But see, An idol is anything by which we substitute the true and the living God. And it could be another person. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be some habitual practice, you know, in our life. Uh, There's so many things. The world can be full of things. Those things are not wrong in themselves, but but people idolize those things. And I think think there's more idolatry today than there's ever been in, in world history because we're you know, so affluent. Um, you know, we have, you know, so we have the means whereby, you know, I've seen people make an idol out of their boat, you know, out of their car, out of their home, you know, out of some other person, out of their job, you know, all these things, you know, not that they're wrong in and of themselves, but again, uh, you know, what's my affection toward that thing? Is that thing so vital? Is that thing more important to me than the true and the living God? He says, now he says to them, who sit among the graves, this was one of the things they did, one of many things they did as they drifted from the true and the living God, they sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. What's he speaking about here? He's speaking about necromancy. When people, you know, basically a seance, I remember one time, you know, all my friends were Catholics, okay, because I was Catholic, and uh, and so we would go over, you know, one of those houses. And I remember one, one summer night, I walked over into Joe's house. And, man, there's, there's him, his mom, and all. It seemed like most of the women in the neighborhood were all around the table with candles lit. And I said to Joe, Joe, what's going on, Joe? I said, is this some kind of secret society or something? He said, no, they're having a seance. And, and we, we're all Catholics, okay? But we're Catholics who don't know the Lord. And, uh, and, and it was kind of interesting because... You know, what, what happens sometimes with people, they believe, and Satan lies about this, that if you get hooked up with a, with a medium or a necromancer, someone's going to hook you up with your dead relative, your dead spouse, your dead son or daughter, or whatever the case may be. And, and 
you know, it's interesting because we live near a Catholic church. And we walk through the parking lot. We'll walk, we'll take a walk, and we'll walk around there. And we notice that there's this lady, this gal. A number of times we walked by on the road going into the church, big long road going into the church. And, and there she is. She's, she's, her car's running. She's kind of parked on the, on, on the, just kind of like on the road. And we're, I don't know what grave she's looking at, but she's looking at that grave. Somebody very near and dear, obviously, to her. I don't know if it was her husband, um, you know, somebody, you know, a, a family member, a parent. I don't know. But obviously, if we, as we caught that, we prayed for her. And we're praying for an opportunity somehow, if the Lord could maybe give us an opportunity to just maybe, you know, share the gospel with her. And, uh, and, and there are many people like that. They want to contact. That's what necromancy is, is contacting the dead. And there are certain mediums that they will try, you know, they will try to... Uh, you know, um, you know, hook you up, uh, so to speak, in order to do that. And, um, and in antiquity, some of these necromancers were ventriloquists. And they would actually throw their voice from the ground, throw their voice in such a way it sounded like their loved one speaking. And also, too, you know, Satan is a, he comes as an angel of light, right? Now, he can, the demon who knew that, who knew that loved one, okay, knew something about that loved one, can mimic that voice. Uh, and, and that voice can come through a medium as that, as that person's life is turned over, you know, to the dark side kind of a thing. And I'll tell you what, it's powerful. My mother was caught up in the occult. It, it's a very powerful thing. I've told you before, I, was, I experienced an astral projection, out-of-body experience, when I didn't want to. But because of the demonic activity that had been brought into the home, that, that's, that's the thing. Sometimes parents don't, don't realize, you know, the things that, you know, they, they can bring into a home. Or even a child. A child can bring into the home occultic kind of things. And, and there, there's, there's demonic agencies and spirits uh, that are involved in that kind of thing that get into the home, and they're very deceptive. And it freaked me out when in 1965 my parents went home. I was coming out of my body. It was in the summer of 1965. And I'm looking around the room, and I know my body's down there, and my, my spirit's kind of up here. And I just said, no, no, no. I mean, I, that was not a ride I wanted to go on. You, know, you hear about these people that, you know, they take rides, astral projection, out-of-body experience, rides. I tell you what, it scared me. It scared me. And these kind of things are very real. You know, as a matter of fact, Isaiah, remember when we were in chapter 8 of Isaiah, he said this, when they say to you, in other words, that's the culture, the, the unsaved culture that gets involved and messes around with all this kind of stuff. Because you know what? When it comes to the occult, man, there's power there. There is a power. There's a darkness there that's very deceptive, and it draws people in, people that are looking for some kind of supernatural connection. And when you look at the occult, a lot of the terminology has been repackaged. It's not a demon spirit to deceive you anymore. Uh, it's basically um, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me here. It's a, um, no, I can't think of the term right now. It'll come to me as I'm reading here, okay? It'll come. The Rolodex is turning. <laughs> and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead 
on behalf of the living? Now God, now he says in verse 20, to the law, to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. And he speaks about their experience uh, in turning from the true and the living God and turning from his revelation, his truth and his word. He says, they will pass through hard pressed and hungry. It shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. They will look upward, in other words, in rebellion and anger. And then they will look to the earth and they will see only trouble, darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So that's, that's the end of those, the result of, of uh, uh, what I was, the word I was looking for, a spirit guide. That's a demon, a spirit guide. That, that's, that's a demon a- agent that's going to lie to somebody. Uh, and eventually, you know, remember, Satan is what? He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And he tries, he tries to deceive people and then basically destroy him. You know, John said this. John said this. The whole world outside of Christianity, outside of biblical re- revelation, he said the whole world is under the sway or the influence of the wicked one. That doesn't mean everybody's demon-possessed, okay? That, that's not what that means. But it means people, to differing degrees, they're influenced by what? The God of this age. And that's why it's important for you and I to pray Satan works very, very hard to keep his prisoners, to keep his captives. He doesn't want to let them go. But again, our God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he's the liberator, right? He's the, he's the emancipator. He, he's the chain breaker. He's the one who sets people free. And we, that's, why, you know, when, that's why when you find out, it is so hard to witness the people. Evangelization is a very difficult thing. You know, because Satan has blinded their eyes, and again, he wants to keep them prisoner. And, and they have a stereotypical model that you and me as a Christian are a bunch of flaky, weird people. And, uh, you know, these Bible-toting born-agains, you know, they got all the different, you know, references, you know, kind of to us. But I tell you what, you know, we're God's people. And, and, and we have God's truth. And we have the sword of the Spirit, okay? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's what we do battle with, okay? And remember, I've always said this. Prayer is what? It's our cruise missile, okay? It's our heavy, heavy artillery. And I'll tell you what, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's why, you know what? The Bible says, fear not, okay? Fear not. You know, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, you know uh, what did Paul say? He said, uh, if God is for us, who? Who can be against us? And he goes in that same chapter. He says, you and I are what? More than conquerors. Think about that. I, all we think about is our defeats, right? <laughs> we oftentimes think more about our failures. When Paul says, hey, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Okay, let's move on here. <clears throat> He says, uh, they, they sit among the graves, they spend a night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh, okay? They like the nice bacon sandwich. I had a, I had a BLT tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful that we're not under that uh, Old Testament bi- uh, dietary thing. I'll tell you, that BLT and those fresh tomatoes from my garden, man, that was awesome. <laughs> I want to go have another one tomorrow, okay. All right, that's enough of that. And the broth of abominable... <clears throat> things in their vessels who say now notice this here um, keep to yourself 
Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. God says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. And again, here, these people, they had become so proud, you know, in their new self-righteousness. You know, man-made righteousness, that's all self-righteousness is. It's a man-made righteousness. I'm, I'm righteous in my own sight. And I was kind of thinking about, I was thinking about pride this week. And, I, you know, I was thinking about, that, that's, that's kind of a great definition of what pride is. It's self-righteousness. And, and man-made righteousness is, you know what, it's the greatest fantasy. Because a person can walk in absolute darkness and they think they're so right. You know, everybody's got religion, okay? Everybody has, in other words, put it this way. Everybody has their own religion or philosophy slash philosophy that they live by. It's a composite sometimes of many different things. And oftentimes people feel that's why sometimes when you want to engage somebody in the conversation, well, I got my religion, they'll tell you. You know, I got my religion. You know, I got my belief. You know, don't, don't. Don't uh, force your belief upon me, you know, kind of thing. You get those kinds of responses and actions. But it's a great fantasy. It's a great fantasy. And I often challenge people, especially when it comes to a funeral, you know, uh, what you believe about the afterlife, what about if it isn't right? Because for most people, it isn't right. Because most people think, you know what, I've been a good guy. I, I, and, and, you know, I appreciate people trying to be good. I really do. I like people that try to be good. But the fact is, we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough to earn our salvation, to, 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 to gain heaven in any kind of way. It's a wonderful, blessed gift that we're given. So God says about this kind of a holier-than-thou you know, kind of attitude, this smoke in his nostril. It's like a fire. You ever have a neighbor burn a fire all day long? You ever have wonderful neighbors like that? <laughs> you know? And... Uh, uh, I thank God that uh, that I don't have any neighbors like that, but I I, ha I have had neighbors like that when they get those fires burning. It's like, oh, my goodness, and the wind just has a way of just blowing it your way. Now, he says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, and even repay to their bosom. And that's the thing here God is saying here. He's warning them because sin has a way of hardening the heart, doesn't it? Man, sin can just sort of, sort of harden somebody so quickly, so amazingly. And then a person, they're so hardened in their condition, they refuse to repent. That's why, you know what? I really believe this. Repentance is a gift. Have a soft, pliable heart that you repent. You repent easily, you know, regarding different things. You know, I was, uh, I, what comes to mind is uh, Psalm I believe it's a Davidic psalm. It's Psalm 141. And David says something there, which is kind of interesting, because he learned through all of his different experiences, I think through his failures and so on and so forth. But he says this, and I think he's maybe harking back to Nathan. Remember, Nathan came to him. David had committed the sin against Bathsheba, murder her husband. He had been living like that for about a year. And Nathan comes to him, and what is interesting, if you read Psalm 38, I think Psalm 38 is written by David during that year because it talks about his struggle. Now, Psalm 51 is a little bit different. Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance. But Psalm 38 is David's psalm when he's going through this sin and he hasn't quite repented. And he speaks about, I'm, I'm roaring all day long. And he's just, he's full of anger and frustration. And it really comes out in Psalm 38. 
But listen to what he says here. I think he's harking back again, looking at how God has used people in his life. He says, let the righteous strike me. I like the old King James, let the righteous smite me. Now look what he says. It will be in the long term a kindness. And what he's speaking about here, there was something that he wasn't willing to let go of. And God sent someone along to strike him, in a sense, to, con to, to convict him. Nathan was obviously just one of those, probably. And he goes on to say, let him rebuke me, for it shall be an excellent oil that will, and, and, and I like the older version, it says, that will not break my head. In other words, a reproof at the right time. It'll be like an anointing, an excellent oil being poured over our lives. That's why, let me tell you again, folks, keep an open, sensitive, repentant heart. It's a gift. I think repentance is a gift, and, and we need to have that. And when someone reproves us, instead of just rising up and, you know, defending yourself, I'll tell you what, this little tongue, the, James says what? It'll set the world on fire. And it's not the tongue. It's really the heart. The tongue just gives the expression to the heart. And when somebody, you know, says something that cuts across the grain of our life, that exposes something in our life, maybe we, we didn't want to have it exposed. You know, sometimes we can hold on to something, and I'll give it up, you know, in time when I want to kind of a thing. But God knows when the time comes. And that's why, again, that reproof, uh, that, that word of conviction can be an excellent oil, like an anointing oil that will come upon your life. And like David says, let not my head refuse it. Let not my head, let not my pride you know, refuse that, that where God is trying to correct me, where God is trying to work you know, within my life and within my particular situation. Now he goes on saying, uh, verse 7, we're back in 65, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and have blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work um, into their bosom. And nothing infuriates God like idol worship. You know, because why? He created us. He loves us. He provides for us. He protects us. He sustains us. He does all these wonderful things. He nurtures us in every possible way. You know, every good thing you have in your life has been given to you by God. The man of the world thinks, well, you know, I pulled myself by the bootstraps, you know. I worked hard for this. You know, I have, you know, I'm an educated person. How can you dare tell me that kind of thing? No, no. You got a good brain? Great. God gave it to you. And everything that you and I have, we can give God glory for. We, we can praise him. We can thank him. All the, all what, whatever it is that you have in your life, it's been the gift of God. But also, too, folks, there's a stewardship with that. There's a stewardship with the gifts and the blessings that you have in your life. And may, may we use those things. But again, this is, this, is, this is kind of what they were doing to God was similar to how a child can turn against loving parents. We've all heard those stories, you know, how there have been loving parents and even Christian parents and children can just sort of turn against them. Can you imagine if you were a loving parent, you did everything for your child that you possibly could, and when they came basically 17, 18 years old, they said, you know what, 
you know, I'm leaving here. I'm sick and tired of you people. I'm going down the street, and I want to live with my buddy. And, and his buddy's parents, they let, him do, they let him do drugs. They let him drink. They let him carry on. Uh, there's, no, you know, there's no responsibility and all that. Can you imagine if your child wanted to do that? What it, wouldn't that break your heart? That's, in a sense, what God's, what God's people here um, you know, basically do to him. They turn against him, not realizing all that he has done. Now, verse 8 is basically, I think, a metaphor for God's grace. He says, uh, thus says the Lord, the new wine is found in the cluster of grapes. And one thing that, that you'll see here through the prophets, that oftentimes when God speaks of he's going to bring judgment, and he's, he's been giving uh, all throughout this prophecy of Isaiah, he's been giving warnings, warnings about judgment. Also, too, we find that whenever you give a warning about judgment, he would also, too, speak of grace and favor and mercy that he was going to give. Uh, sort of it's the other side of the coin, so to speak. You know, sometimes you know, when people, some people just, you know, will take a portion of Scripture about judgment, and that's how they'll malign God. Oh, he's a judgmental God. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an angry God. He's, he's, look, look, at the, look what he says here kind of a thing. Uh, and, and that's why it's important that we read all of the Scripture, not just cherry-pick, you know, certain things uh, that can put maybe God in a, in a negative kind of a light. And uh, so whenever he speaks here of judgment, um, it's likened to a harvest where, where God puts the sickle to the wheat. He says, a new, he says, as a new wine is found in a cluster, that would be a cluster of grapes, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. So again here, the larger body of Israel will be corrupted and was corrupted. But remember, God, he always has his remnant. He always has that faithful remnant, you know, of true believers. And remember, remember Elijah in his conversation with God? Remember he says, I think he says it two or three times, at least two times for sure, in, in 1 Kings. Uh, might be chapter 19, perhaps, I'm not sure. But he says, I, only I am left. Okay? And, and the Lord says, you know what, Elijah? I've got 7,000 more you don't even know about, but they haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Now, he was thinking, he obviously had been thinking, I'm the only one. I, I'm running for my life. I'm running down to the Sinai to go into a cave and hide. I'm the only one left. But he wasn't. See, God always has his remnant. God always has his people. Uh, we don't always know where they are. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, uh, I've heard of folks uh, getting a new job, and it's like, you know, this whole place is just filled with, with heathen, unbelievers. You know, God's got his people there. Just pray. Just pray for the Lord to reveal, you know, where they are. And so he says, so I do. There's a blessing in it. He's not going to destroy everyone, but he's going to bring judgment, and, and, and a judgment to such a degree where the larger percentage of the nation would be destroyed. That, that's happened many different times. When you, when you read the book of Revelation, there are billions of people that die. I mean, it is going to be, um, and aren't you thankful that we don't have to be there for that experience? We're going to be watching from the grandstand that... Um, that time of that horrific time of bloodshed and judgment upon the world. And it's a Christ-rejecting world. 
it, it's even in the judgment that, you know, there are those that are shaking their fist. Now, God will save people. There, there will become a multitude of people that will be saved out of that. But uh, so much easier to get saved now, huh? You know? It's a wonderful thing. What a privilege to be a part of the bride, the bride of Christ, the wedding party. This is the wedding party. What a, what a wonderful thing it is. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, from Judah, and heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Now he brings out, the, he speaks of these two areas, Sharon and Achor, uh, these were areas that were basically marked by defeat. In other words, God's speaking about restoration. He's speaking about the restoration of his people. Um, the restoration to them. I would imagine for 2,000 years, uh, after uh, you know, the loss in 70 AD, uh, as you know, the Jew was dubbed the name, the wandering Jew, uh, you know, for those generations that, that lived through that whole period, did they ever think that they're, they're, we're never going back there? I imagine just generations of Jews and Hebrews have thought, you know what? We're dispersed. We're scattered to the four winds. And uh, we'll, we'll never, never go back there. And look what God's done. God's faithful to his word. Brought them back under impossible, impossible circumstances and, and situations. And here they are, uh, a powerful nation there. Um, and I just, you know, that list I read Sunday of uh, recent inventions Medical, technical inventions, uh, you know, by the Israelis. Uh, you know, God, is, he's fulfilled this promise. And we were talking about how, how Genesis chapter 12, where God says you know, to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through your people, through your descendants. I will bless all the families. And, and, and he has. Uh, only, I, there's things that only God knows that how many times throughout history where he had a Jew or a Christian in a key position, in a key place that brought blessing to multitudes of people. That's the grace of our God. That's him fulfilling his glorious and, and, and wonderful uh, promises. He says, but you are those, now he's speaking here again, he's addressing these rebels in verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain and prepare a table for Gad and furnish a drink for Menai. Uh, now, these are interesting terms here. Um, they, uh, they're also two, these, these two things they refer to uh, are also pagan deities. And um, this word here, Manai, also too, it can also be translated into the word number. And so he says, therefore, I will number you with the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. You know, I wonder too if they ever thought, you know, once they left, public worship what would happen what would transpire how life can fall apart so quickly when we migrate when we move away you know that's why um, it's uh, in Hebrews it's chapter 3 uh, he speaks about these things and he speaks about making a departure from the true and the living God and there's a lot of people that are, that are in the midst of a departure from the true and the living God they don't know it they, they really don't know it well, you know, I'm st I, I'm still, I still, you know, belong to that church. <laughs> I remember one time. <laughs> it really cracked me up. Um, 
this was many years ago, and uh, we were looking for another car at the time, and we stopped at a car dealership. And uh, and I had been I had been a newly pastor at Webster for I think for two three years, and so we stopped at this uh, this uh, car lot, and uh, we get talking to this person, and uh, she, she finds out that that I'm a and well I said she said to us a Christian she was a Christian because we started witnessing to her, and uh, I said well where do you go to church? She said oh I go to Calvary Chapel Webster. I said, really? I said, I'm the pastor there. How are you doing? <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Not that I was trying to get her, but the Lord got her, right? You know, kind of a thing. And sometimes I think there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they, they you know, I, I think when we get to heaven, it's going to be a surprise maybe to some people that are not there. And it might surprise us who is there, on the other hand. So God says uh, in verse 12, <clears throat> he says, I'll number you to the sword, and you shall all bow down to slaughter. And the history of witness, or the history of Israel bears witness to this, doesn't it? How they have been. God has fulfilled his promise that if they didn't turn to him and didn't repent, that's what would happen, and it did. And here's why he says in verse 12, this, the latter part, because, you, because when I called... You did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So, you know, when you think about how God calls us, how he speaks to us, he speaks to us through his word. He, he calls to us sometimes <clears throat> at night. You ever have the Lord speak to you kind of in a dream? There's been times I feel like I've almost heard it audibly. The Lord kind of say something and get my attention. And sometimes it's been, it's been you know, in my spirit. In my, but I almost thought there was somebody else in the room. And I, I, I looked. It was just him. You know, him just saying, hey, I'm here. I want to speak to you. So they chose that, it says, in which God did not delight. Okay, verse 13, he continues with this, this contrast here of, a, of true servants, those who obey and those who don't, those who basically live in disobedience. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you, he says, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. And I think what he's, what he's getting to here is, is an apt description of really what life is like without the Lord. Life, life does feel empty. You know, there, there is a hunger and a thirst in people. I remember growing up in an alcoholic family. I could see people, and I, you know, as a kid, you know, you try, sometimes try to look at people and figure them out. And I think, why do they just keep drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking? Because there's a thirst there. But it's, you know what? it's really a thirst for something more. There's a hunger there. And God, I think, has placed that there so that hopefully we will thirst after him, that we will hunger, you know, after, you know, the Lord and, and look to him in some kind of way. He says, uh, 
Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and well for grief of spirit. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, how, doesn't the Lord fill us? Isn't it wonderful? You know, you can sit down, get your Bible out, pray, read the Bible, and just go away with a sense of satisfaction. Just walk away with a sense of contentment. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was hungry for an answer. I was, I was, you know, thirsting for guidance and direction. And man, man, I, I opened my Bible this morning and, and uh, man, the Lord had wonderfully spoken to me. And um, so different from way, the way our lives used to be. And think of all the things that people hunger for and they plug themselves into the wrong thing. And, you know, Satan always has the counterfeit, doesn't he? He always has a counterfeit of something that, you know, people are hungering and thirsting for that they think is going to satisfy uh, them in some kind of way. And the world is filled. It's filled with some kind of, it's filled with so many counterfeits out there. You know, sometimes I'll be, <laughs> you know, watching television for a few hours. And it's like you turn it off, it's just like, <sighs> Then I'll go up in my bed, and I got a Bible up there on my nightstand, and, and I just open it up, and it's just like, huh, yeah, yeah, this is what I needed all night. And uh, I tried to get it by, you know, watching some John Wayne Western or something like that, you know. John, John Wayne didn't do anything for me. You know, the Duke, he didn't do anything for me. But I'll tell you what, the Lord, man, how quickly he can just sort of speak to our hearts. He says, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. Isn't it interesting, too, how the Jew, the name Jew, oftentimes has been used in a profane kind of way? I can remember growing up hearing it, hearing it used in a profane kind of way. And, and even in such a way um, where it was used that, you know, hey, you're, you're, you know, someone had taken someone maybe taken advantage of you and exploited you. Oh, he Jewed me out of that. You ever hear that? And, uh, and, and you hear it sometimes in all kinds of different ways. And, and, and I'll tell you what, I was in Israel. And anybody, anybody, any guys go to Israel? Do you remember going down to shoot? Remember going down to shoot with all the shops, you know? And it's the, it's the you know, it's the, the, the Muslim section. And, uh, and, you know, all the guys are hanging out, uh, you know, by their, their little uh, area selling, and they're hawking things, and they're trying to, hey, you know, Christian, come on in here, you know, American, come on in here, I got a deal for you. And, uh, and I can remember going, going in there and just haggling. I'm a great haggler. I love to haggle, okay? I do. I do get me going, and, man, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'll try to beat them. And, uh, and I can remember haggling, with, haggling over something, and, um, and I said, no, I walked away. And they hate that, you know. Sometimes you're there for 10, 15 minutes and you just walk away kind of a thing. And so we go over to the Jewish quarter. And I walk into a shop. And there's the thing that I've been haggling for for 15 minutes. It's already lesser than the lowest point I haggle to. And that was a lesson. That was really quite a lesson. You know, as far as, you know, as far as someone being Jewish and, you know, 
taking advantage. I'll tell you what, God has blessed the world with the Jew. He has given them creativity. He has given them ability. How many companies are owned by Jewish people? You know, how many great doctors, um, you know, have come up and, and scientists have come up with, you know, discoveries. Um, we, we talked about that one time. It's, it's off the charts, you know, on a per capita basis. It's off the charts compared to other people groups. I think uh, one of the comparisons we made with the, with the Muslim world, which is, uh, you know, billions of people, billions of people in the Muslim world, hundreds of millions and billions of people in the Muslim world compared to the Jews. And, and they have nowhere even close to Nobel Prizes that the Jews have. And that's just one, that's just one small comparison. But, but you, you know what? It's God. It's the Lord blessing people. It's the Lord using people. And uh, we have to remember, keep that in mind. So <clears throat> we are here in verse 15. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. And he's fulfilled that in the church, hasn't he? He's called us by another name. We're Christians. Yet we're God's people. We, we belong to him. We're his beloved. We're his bride. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall also bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. And so he's saying here, basically, if you invoke a, less, a blessing or even take an oath, you know, do it by the God of truth. I can remember as a kid, um, you know, you would hear things like, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave. You ever hear crazy things like that, you know? And usually they say that when they're lying, okay? <laughs> they try to convince you, you know, you know, buy this, you know, I swear to God, I swear to God. And uh, if we're going to take an oath, let's take it by the God of truth, Okay. <clears throat> He says, because the former troubles are forgotten, verse 16, uh, and because they are hidden uh, from my eyes. So when you think about, you know, all of our trials, you know, all of our troubles, you know, if they lead us to repentance, how wonderful that is. You know, when those things happen, you're know, always forgiven. And with God, all is forgotten. Isn't that an incredible thing that God says, I choose to forget. You know, I not only choose to forgive, but I choose to forget. And, and in his, you know, in his virtue um, and in his greatness, he can do that. He can deem to forget something, even though sometimes we, we don't always forget our great mistakes, do we? You know, especially someone else's great mistakes. We never forget those. <laughs> we like to forget ours, but uh, sometimes uh, uh, not so easy. Now, the Lord says in verse 17, behold, I create. A new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And, uh, you know, both Old and New Testaments tell us, you know, how to forget the past and, and to look forward because, you know what, we've got a future. Don't let the past cripple you. It will. Past failure. I, I would have, should have, could have, but I didn't. Get over it. You're letting Satan play with you. If you are a person, that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting the past, and pressing forward to the things that God has for you. I mean, think about this. People that live in the past, they don't even live in the present because their whole life is stymied 
and crippled by some past event, some person, some circumstance, some situation, and Satan loves to keep you there. Some fear. It's going to happen again. You serve the true and the living God. He's your protector. He's your keeper. He, he says, come with me. I've got a future for you. And that's how, that's how people lose their way. They, they are just, they're, they're stuck in their past. And, and even in psychology, that's a problem oftentimes with psychiatry and psychology, is they're always, they're digging something up. They're like a dog digging up an old grave, some, some dead old thing. And, and I, we think that somehow if we examine this dead old thing that we can understand it, no. The Bible says forget it. We need a divine forgetting. We, we need to let go of the past and allow God to bring us. And you know what? Every one of us have something. Every one of us have something. If we focused on it, it will cripple us. It will emotionally cripple your life. And, if you want to, and when you talk to people, that are, that are in that kind of place, it comes out right away. And there are people like that their whole life. They never, get out of a comp, they never get out of a counseling session. Their whole life is one counseling session. And it's sad. Sad for a child of God to, to be stuck in that kind of place. Because Jesus has got something wonderful and new for each one of us. Amen. A glorious and wonderful future. We will pick up next time in that place. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the promises. Lord, uh, you say in Jeremiah, Lord, where your people had gone through 70 years of slavery, captivity, defeat, and failure. You said to that generation, I give you a, a future and a hope. And our hope and our expectation, Lord, today, Lord, is in you. And I pray for anyone today that, Lord, if they're stuck in the past and they're haunted by that, Lord, they're living in defeat, I pray, Lord, you said that you were our victory, that your resurrection power would would lift us above, Lord, the past, the, the failures, the defeat, and what if that, and what if this would have changed? What if this would have been different? Lord, give us divine forgetting. And Lord, to take hold of you, take hold of your promise. Lord, what a glorious future we have. Lord, and it's in you. It's not in our past. It's not in some difficult thing that we went through, some painful thing, some old wounding. Lord, you're the great healer. And how, Lord, we look to you tonight. And I think of that verse in Psalm 119 where it says you sent forth your word and you healed them. Lord, your word has come to us tonight in a fresh way. If there's something, Lord, in our hearts and lives, That's a, a wound that's still hemorrhaging. Lord, apply the healing balm of Gilead. Lord, send forth your virtue, we pray. 
within our lives, within our experience. Lord, we don't want to be held captive to the past. We want to move forward. We want to enjoy the life that you've given us. We want to live for Christ. Father, help us, we pray, to do that. And for that, Lord, we will give you glory and praise and worship and adoration. In Jesus' precious name, amen.